stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Shield. Listening in Stockholm, Sweden, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and in Dearborn, Michigan, I am your Marquis de Podcast Deluxe, the Colonel of the Colonies, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast, dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming, a podcast meant to be listened to while you're working on your fantastic, amazing projects and painting your awesome figs. So, the last thing I have to tell you young fellas is this. Play up and play the game. Honor your queen and country. Mind what your masters tell you. Say your prayers each night. Keep your minds and your bodies clean. Take a cold bath each day. And you'll find you can always look the world in the eye like an English gentleman. Now, before I get uh, rolling here, I just want to say Happy New Year to you. And I want to take this moment to wish you a great new year, a great full year. I hope that everything that you do brings you fulfillment. I hope everything that you set out to do, you accomplish. And I hope that uh, the world is good to you. And wherever you're listening to this show in the world, whether it's in Australia or New Zealand, India, uh, Turkey, France, England, United States, Brazil, Argentina, wherever you're listening, I want to say thank you very much. I've been doing this uh, program for... Let's see, I started the revamped version, in other words, the Supercast, in November 2021, (laughs) and uh, now we're going into 2023, and uh, I just want to thank you very much for listening. The response has been fantastic. As I present this program, uh, for you who need something to listen to while you're sitting down and painting, right? Uh, That's the point of the show, so there's there's some wargaming, there's some history, There's some interviews, there's some reviews, there's some old-time radio pieces, just a big package of stuff to help you get motivated to do what you're doing right now. So once again, I thank you very much. With that said, in this episode, I am joined by friend of the podcast, Chris Pringle, to talk about Bloody Big Battles, his rule set for large-scale wargaming. Also, this this was tough, this was tough. I'm going to do a uh, review of the 1975 ne'er-do-well classic, Royal Flash, starring Malcolm McDowell and Oliver Reed. And I will absolutely close the show once again with a sweet archaeological find, archaeological audio find, I should say. Uh, This one, I got to start the new year right with Errol Flynn. But before we get going on anything... It's time for your emails. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington DC calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. Message for you, son. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. So I received a couple emails about a particular segment of the show. So here we go. Uh, This one's from John Jones on the beach, listening in Naples. I'm assuming that is Naples, Florida, and not Naples, Italy. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, if I am, then uh, you know, send me an email and correct me. Uh, but uh, John Jones on the beach, he writes, Duke Scott, I saw on the Facebook page that you scrapped your figs 
What do you mean scrapped? Okay. So, <laughs> all right. So anyway, so I have this project going on. It's my Silk, uh, Silk Road Wars project. Uh, Central Asians versus Russians versus British versus Persians. Uh, that whole kind of like Central Asia deal right there uh, in the mid-19th century. I have been looking for particular horsemen uh, for a long, long time. Uh, I can't pronounce the Russian uh, painter's name, uh, Vasily Vasiklov or something like that. I, 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 I totally just blew, blew up his name, and I apologize. But in his paintings, there is particular uh, horsemen that uh, are Central Asian. I'm not sure if they're Kievan or uh, they're uh, Bukharan, uh, but they, they're running up against the Russians, and they have these stripes and these big, puffy uh, yellow pants, but they have these particular hats. They look like airplanes, like paper airplanes. That's what the hat looks like. Now, I had gotten a couple of boxes of hard plastic, 28-millimeter, uh, light Arab cavalry. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go ahead and make them. And I did. And when I mean scrapped, I mean I, I painted them up. I, I built them. I painted them. I did everything I needed to do. The hats still weren't right. And I just didn't. I Look, if you are, you are using those hard plastic uh, kits for the figures, God bless you. I know there's people out there that love them. I have such a problem with them. I really do. I don't know what it is, but if it's soft plastic or it's metal, I got no problem. A hard plastic, it just seems so, it just doesn't work. It's like I can't get it to work the way I want it, right? Um, also, my paint job on there was okay. Um, I've been, my hands have been shaking a lot lately, and I just, I, I got the figures done. I got them all painted up. They looked okay, but I just, I thought, you know, if I'm going to put this much work into these figures, I want them to look really, really spiffy, and I just scrapped the whole thing. Just scrapped it. I just, I took them all, I, I took all the figures, all the pieces, all the parts, all the ones I've already painted, I put them in a box, and I put them out of my sight, and that's what I mean by scrap. So I didn't scrap everything. I just scrapped those particular models. Then I went ahead to another set I had, in metals that, you know, my paint job was a little bit better. My hands still shook a lot, um, but I was able to make it look a little bit better. I still don't have the right hat. It's a, now it's a stovetop sort of puffy Cossack hat, but you know, everything else is okay. So until I can figure out where I can find these airplane hat heads, then that's going to have to do for now. But anyway, uh, so I got a bunch of emails on this because they saw this. Uh, I put this on Twitter. I put it on, um, on Facebook also. And so I got, Scott, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? It's like, oh, it's, it's all right. It's all right. I'm not killing the whole thing. I just killed that particular uh, group right there. I don't know. If you do that too, please send me an email or, or hit the Twitter or go on the Facebook page and you know, put up some of the stuff that you've ditched too. Because I can't, I can't think I'm the only person that's ditched a project piece right in the middle and said, ah, I can't do this anymore, ah, right? 
Anyway, so uh, John Jones on the beach listening to Naples. Thank you very much for your, uh, for your email. Uh, next email is from Abul Ba, listening on Spotify in Abu Dhabi. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. If I didn't, I apologize. Uh, it says here, uh, Scott, have you decided on your next project after your Silk Road thing is done? <sighs> no, I haven't. I haven't. I have 5,000 other projects. I'm going to stay in the 19th century. I, I'll tell you that right now. The other thing, too, is there's a piece of me. There's a piece of me that wants to do something with the Northwest uh, Canadian Mounties. I feel like I need to do something pulp-like, but I still want to keep it in the 19th century. So I'm not quite sure, but I'm, I'm leaning that way. Huh? Also, I got a problem every time. <laughs> I don't even know if I should say this because I don't know if you guys will be offended or, or laugh. Um, I'll say it, and then you can either be offended or laugh. Uh, it's up to you. But every time I put deodorant on in the morning, I always think of the Northwest Mounted Police. I don't know why. I, there's no connection there whatsoever. The only thing I, th I can think of is that there was a time where every morning I would get up, I'd be getting ready for work, I'd be putting on deodorant, I'd brush my teeth, put my clothes on, put my shoes on, and listening to Challenge of the Yukon. So maybe that's where that comes from, but I <laughs> don't be offended. I just, this is weird. That's it, just weird. But other than that, I can't think of another project uh, that I'm really, like I'm game for like 100 projects. I have 100 projects in mind I want to do. But uh, I haven't really, really picked out just one. So uh, Abul Ba uh, in Abu Dhabi, listen on Spotify. Thank you for your email. Uh, this uh, last one here comes from Prod Ken in New Zealand. Prod Ken in New Zealand. And uh, Prod Ken writes, your interviews are pretty good, but why do you only interview authors from Hellion and from nowhere else? Prod Ken, that's an easy answer right there. There's, that is the most simple answer that I can, I can give you, and that's because nobody else returned my calls. Nobody's returned my emails. I, call, I called Osprey. I uh, emailed Osprey. I, I tweeted Osprey, personal, one of those personal tweets, and uh, nobody, nobody. And it hasn't been just Hellion. It doesn't, you know, I, I talked to the guys over at Firelock Games, um, Chris Pringle, who has written for Hellion, has edited for Hellion, but he also has his bloody big bows, which we're going to talk about today. But let me tell you something. Here's, here's the thing about Hellion Press. Now, I'm not on their payroll. I just, you know, I'm, it's a great series. The Muskets to Maxim series is great. And I, I'm trying to line up some more authors uh, to bring them on here to talk about other aspects that I haven't talked about in the last year. And let me tell you something. That series is good. That's it. I'm not being paid to say that. It just is a good series. And if you love 19th century history, like I do, they have a whole, I mean, there's pages and pages and pages on the website of all different books just concerning 19th century history. Why wouldn't I go there? Now, there are other, I'm not saying that there aren't other publishers out there. I'm just saying that the publishers that I've tried to talk to haven't returned my call. Eh, there you go. You know, Hellion did. Guess what? <laughs> That's what I'm going to talk to. So, uh, Pride Ken, there you go. That's the easiest answer I've given all day. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Coming up next, I'm going to do the movie review for the 1975 ne'er-do-well classic 
Royal Flash, next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. I hear that conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. Shot and Shield is on social media. There's the Twitter page, at Shot and Shield. Please follow. There's a Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. It's open to all. Please join and post some of your amazing games, paint jobs, and creations. Finally, the email, shotandshield at gmail.com. Email me if you have a question or a thought or even a complaint that you'd like read and answered on the podcast. Shot and Shield is on social media. Shot and Shield. What are you looking at? It's time for Shot and Shield movie review. Thank you for continuing to listen to Shot and Shield, the supercast for uh, this January. A happy new year to all of you. Now, as you know, all of the movies I review for this podcast have a connection to the 19th century, either historical or literary in its context. And it helps us kind of unwind and understand what we've come to know as 19th century wargaming, right? And that, that's, how, that's how my mind works. So some, sometimes it'll inspire us. Sometimes it'll uh, give us some uh, tips, maybe some colors for their uniforms or maybe some alternative colors for the uniforms or maybe a scenario or maybe some terrain ideas or something like that. And I will tell you right off, right out of the box, this did none of that. Absolutely none of that. So let me just start like this. Harry Flashman is a well-known Victorian fictional hero. He was concocted in the melon of author George MacDonald Fraser. There's a series of novels with Harry Flashman at the center of this whole deal. And some of you are keenly aware of Flashman and have posted pictures of your Flashman figs which I'm asking you to do again on the Shot and Shield Facebook group. This episode's movie is the 1975 classic Royal Flash. It stars Malcolm McDowell as Captain Harry Flashman, Oliver Reed as Otto von Bismarck. It's directed by Richard Lester, who also directed Help and Hard Day's Night by the Beatles, right? Also, 1973's The Three Musketeers. He directed Superman's 2 and 3. Also, he directed A Funny Thing Happened to Me on Way to the Forum, which was really funny. So Richard Lester is no slouch. And not to be outdone, George MacDonald Frazier, the author, is also the screenwriter for Royal Flash. You got a couple of good actors in Malcolm McDowell, who's awesome, and Oliver Reed, who is awesome, right? So screenplay writer is the writer, good director, two good actors. What could go wrong? This whole movie could go wrong. This whole movie could go wrong. Wow. The storyline is that Captain Harry Flashman, who is really this lecherous coward, seems to be always in the right place at the right time with the right luck coming his way. He always He's always on top. He always gets out of the mess. And But... He's kind of an idiot, but he's also the hero. So, the last thing I have to tell you young fellas is this. Play up and play the game. Honor your queen and country. Mind what your masters tell you. Say your prayers each night. Keep your minds and your bodies clean. 
take a cold bath each day. And you'll find you can always look the world in the eye like an English gentleman. Now, my lads, I'm just a simple soldier. Yes, I am, though. But I tell you, if you follow these rules, then when the last roll call comes, you'll be able to go up before the great headmaster with a clean British conscience and say, well, sir, I tried to do my duty. And I think, I think you'll find that's good enough for him. So after a big party, Flashman, he's running away from, you know, he's trying to get away from the cops. And he ends up in a carriage of this uh, lady. The lady just happens to be Bismarck's girlfriend. It doesn't go well. What the devil are you doing, sir? I'm hiding, Mom. Well, I can see that. Who from? And in my carriage, if you please. Please, I mean no harm. It's the police. Oh, no, no, I'm not a criminal. I was in a club that was raided. Oh. Get out of this. Do you hear? Oh, please, let no! explain. Oh, let him alone, Otto. Can't you see he's a gentleman? Quick, you booby, onto the seat. Such a delightful party. Huh? There I was, standing in a corner. Oh, yes. Surrounded by three <laughs> duchesses. And only two of them drunk. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Might you have seen a gentleman running? Yes, constable. This is your man. Will you arrest him, please? Oh, stop it, Otto. Really, sergeant, it's too bad. He's making game of you. This gentleman is with us. Yes, stop playing the fool, Otto. I'm tired. My leg hurts. I need a nice rubdown. Um, just there. Ooh, the anguish. Here, I know you. You're Captain Fleshman, be God. The hero of Afghanistan. My stars. The yeah. defender of Piper's fault. <laughs> well, here's a go. He is a criminal fugitive who invaded our coach without permission. Well, I don't care if he invaded Buckingham Palace without permission. Yes. <laughs> You're not English, are you? I am a German officer and I demand yes. that... Well, Captain Fleshman is a British officer, so you don't demand nothing. So to get back at Flashman, Otto von Bismarck, he concocts this plan of Flashman impersonating a German prince and marrying to a, another German duchy, and then Otto von Bismarck can work uh, to get Germany back in one collective... Pe- you see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going here? You don't seem pleased to see me. But then why should you, hmm? There is a score to settle. I still have a tooth missing. But don't imagine that is why I had you brought to Germany. Amazing as it may seem, Mr. Flashman, I need you. Fastin, give him a brandy, he will need it. Tell me something, Mr. Flashman. In between your whoring and your drinking, have you taken any interest in politics? Hmm? Politics? Well, I'm a Tory. My governor was a Tory MP. Until they found him out. I am a politician. Someday I shall be the statesman responsible for uniting the present loose German states into a stronger Germany. Into a Reich. That is my destiny. 
One of these little German states I wish to see incorporated in this Reich is called Strakens. It's a small independent duchy ruled over by a young and popular duchess. Her name is Elma. In two weeks' time, she is to be married to a certain crown prince, Karl Magnus, of Oldenburg in Scandinavia. It is vitally important for political reasons, for my plans. This wedding should take place, you understand? By all means. Splendid. Good luck to the happy couple. There has been a serious complication. The crown prince, an admirable young man in many ways, has been foolish. He has contracted a social disease. A what? A social disease. You mean he's got a dose of clam? <laughs> well, that's damned inconsiderate of him. <laughs> Still, boys will be boys. But ultimately, it doesn't work. In the end, Flashman escapes with the girl and the money. Otto von Bismarck just shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, whatever, I'll go, I'll, I'll go to war with France instead. That'll help me. He's all nonchalant-like. And that's pretty much the end of the movie, except for <laughs> where they invent Russian roulette, but they call it something else. What? It's a little game I've invented. I think I'll call it Hungarian roulette. Have a try. You see, old fellow, when I kill you, it'll be because I want to, and not because Otto Bismarck says so. You do see the difference. Oh, absolutely. What are you going to do? Go abroad, I think. Bismarck's such a damn bore. But then I suspect great men usually are. What about you? Hmm. That damn Lola has cleaned me out. Oh, well. I've still got the 500 quid she gave me to come to Germany. Well, it's better than nothing. Yes. And as I always say, if you've got money in the bank and a drink in the house, what more do you want? My turn, I think. Hell's bells, Rudy! Somebody could have been killed! Well, that is the point of the game. But I could have been killed! Now, I will say that I have summarized this down to its most elemental parts. There, there are a bunch of fight scenes, there's some love scenes, there's a lot of whiny brat scenes. And if Malcolm McDowell was being directed to be a simpering dolt, mission accomplished. And if, if Oliver Reed was being directed to be a miserable old man, mission accomplished. Really, I, I, I know this is meant to be a farce, but come on. I mean, I mean... It could be a good farce, like Airplane was a good farce, Blazing Saddles was a good farce. Uh, this is just not good. Look, I have this movie for you to watch for yourself on the Shot and Shield YouTube page. I put it up there. It's right there for you to take a look at yourself, and, and you make the decision. But in the end, I'm missing a few brain cells, and I'm not really happy about it. I really didn't get much material out of this for Wargaming. Nothing really inspired me to paint. I was kind of kind of angry at the film afterwards, so maybe you don't want to watch it. But it's on the YouTube page if you want to check it out for sure. So I got to give this a pith helmet of one. Not a good score. Yeah, but if you're into self-loathing and self-abuse, there's one hour and 42 minutes of it 
on the Shot and Shield YouTube page for you. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual, the Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. Hey, what the blazes is this? A podcast dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming. All right, Marines. I punch. This is Shot and Shield. And shield. The Shot and Shield Supercast rolls on and make sure to check out and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Just search out Shot and Shield or click on the link in the information section of this podcast. In this edition of Shot and Shield, I am joined once again by friend of the podcast, Chris Pringle, editor of Hungary 1848, The Winter Campaign, and the upcoming book Hungary 1849, The Summer Campaign, both on Hellion and Company Publishers. But we are here today. We are here today to talk about his war game rules, bloody big battles. Uh, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. There's a Napoleonic version, a late 19th century version, now a new version for India. Well, I'm going to have to kind of correct you because you're Please. wrong. But first, it's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me back, Scott. Absolutely. Really enjoyed the last one. Yeah, bloody big battles. It's a rule set which was designed for the late 19th century, but we found it works unchanged for Napoleonics, even up to the Balkan Wars in 1912, 1913. Yes, uh, there are supplementary volumes with scenarios for these different conflicts. There's one for the Balkan Wars, there's one for India, and there's one for Hungary 1848, and there's more in preparation or planning. Uh, we've done a lot with Napoleonics. Napoleonics might be the next book to come out, gotcha. but the rules... The rules work unchanged. Okay, so let's talk about the rules because I want to I want to recap a little bit because last time you and I uh, spoke, we kind of skimmed over the, the basics mm -hmm. of it. But so if I'm a if I'm a if I'm a newbie to large battles, yeah, run me down just to, without giving away the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> run run me down sort of a a, a turn. A turn. Um, first, one side gets to move. The other side has defensive fire. The moving side then it's get, gets its offensive fire. And if anyone's gone in to charge, then you resolve the assaults. The movement is one unit at a time. You have to roll dice to see if it'll move at all and how far it'll move. An activation mechanism. And the worst state a unit's in, there's a chance it'll fall back or even disintegrate. Yeah, that's the, the basic sequence. Okay. Let's talk unit sizes, okay? Because when you, when I hear bloody big bat battles, I could hear core level units, or are we talking battalion level units or company level units? So what? It's elastic, 
regardless of your size of battle, the idea is you will get that entire battle onto your regular six foot four by four foot table with maybe four or six of you around it. And it'll take maybe a dozen turns to complete. And those dozen turns will take you three or four hours because we wanted to play entire battles on a club night, including setting up and taking down. The unit scale, all right, each side is typically going to have 10, 15, at most 20 units. That's infantry and cavalry units. And if your army is 200,000 strong, then those 15 units are going to be, have to be 15,000 strong divisions. If it's only a 100,000 man army, then maybe they're 6,000 strong brigades. At, at the largest scale, if you're doing really big battles, maybe a unit is uh, a, a couple of divisions getting towards a core, like you say. Are you t- the so an individual piece, an individual uh, sculpt is going to be representative? So it's one to 20 or one to 40 or something like that, or is it one to one? We use inch square bases, and the units are built up. A typical infantry unit is three, four, five of those bases, and a base might be 1,500 or 2,000 men. In the largest games, it might be three or even 4,000 men. If it's a, an artillery base, perhaps it's 24 or 36 guns, up to 48 or 60 guns for that one model. The troop scale varies. The ground scale varies. The time scale varies. For huge battles, maybe that six foot is 15 or 20 or even 30 miles of battlefield front, and maybe a turn is two hours long. But the smaller so, battles, it'll be half an hour. So essentially, so essentially, you wouldn't need to because when I when I when I see uh, on your um, on your Facebook page, please and please check it out. Bloody big battles on Facebook. It's a Facebook group. When I see the pictures of the b- bloody big battles that have been been played, a lot of it is a six millimeter, fifteen millimeter, or in that in that range right there. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, way you've described it i could do this with 28 millimeter it's just that 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 one figure is going to be representative yeah people have done it with 28 millimeter i think they tend to use a bigger table and increase the measurements by maybe 50 percent because otherwise it it does look a bit strange i suppose i favor six millimeter if i were to start again i'd probably go 10 millimeter because everyone's eyes are getting older Uh, and you can (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's easier to tell the units apart at 10 millimeter but my armies are pretty much all six mil, and and they do the job. You know, it's funny as I was doing, um, and I I've said this on the podcast many a times. I used to do seventy uh, second, one seventy second scale, mm-hmm. um, plastics and stuff like that before I moved to twenty eight millimeter. And the, pur- the purpose of that was because my eyes were getting to a point where I I need something a little bit bigger. Really, even with even putting detail on there and with the eyeglasses and the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine. I could never have imagined just 15 millimeter, let alone six millimeter. I mean, I. Well, it's it's mass effect, isn't it? Your battle looks more like a battle if there's some thousands of figures rather than just some dozens. Right. Um, Especially for, from an aerial view. So you're looking. Yeah. Yeah. It almost it almost it, it's almost 2D. Yeah. Yeah. In its presentation. Yeah. Maybe two and a half D. Right. <laughs> So you wouldn't need. So you, so you're saying also that you you know if you have a, a six by four table, you're fine doing that. But you don't need to have because this is the thing that entered my head. I'm like, man, I'm gonna need a twelve foot by four foot table. This is gonna be long. I'm gonna have to play if I if I want to play a twenty eight millimeter uh, game, really twelve feet long by four feet. I can't do the length. I'm gonna or I'm gonna have to play the length. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I can't play end to end. Take forever. You know, but the way you're you're describing it, well, a big battle 
doesn't have to be a big game. Right. That's the point, isn't it? Right. Okay. Mm. You, you've done the Balkans. Run me through yeah. the, with, with the Balkans. Run me through the the time period and uh, the the protagonists. Oh, the Balkan Wars. Well, that's 1912, 1913. Uh, it's well, it's a rehearsal for the First World War, isn't it? They've got mm-hmm. all the, the the weaponry everyone else has in 1914. They've got the machine guns, the barbed wire, the artillery. Bulgaria and Romania and Greece and um, Serbia initially all fighting the Ottoman Empire start fighting amongst themselves over the spoils. One of the things that I always found amazing uh, about the Balkan Wars in general, just from a historical standpoint, was that the Ottomans, even in their attacks, are thinking defensively. When Greece gets involved, and if my history is wrong, correct me, but it's almost like they're playing this this risk game of, hey, look, I'm going to be your friend right now. Okay. Oh, now these guys are out of the way. Now we're going to come and 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 cut you up because we want Macedonia. We want uh, all uh, Albania. Mm-hmm. You know, th- mm-hmm. these are the areas that we want to uh, to continue our our empire. It, it, you know, to that effect. Oh yeah, the the Balkans and, and carving up the territory, and it, it's like we talked about last time around the Hungary. That part of the world is such a patchwork of tribes, mm-hmm. peoples, and and, and religions. So everyone can claim each other's territory because everyone's got some people in each other's territory. It's real messy. With uh, just the Balkan version, can you scale that up into uh, having Austria and Russia enter their war? Wow. Um, well, then then you're fighting the First World War, aren't well, you? Well, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, got, it's got one pretty big battle in it already, something mm-hmm. like 80, 80 kilometers of front, hundreds of thousands of men. Sure, because you can, because do, what technolo- if, technologically, yeah, you can do what if scenarios. Yeah, yeah, I mean, technologically, it's not uh, much different than what's going on uh, in uh, 1912 and 1913. It's not like, you know, they get the breech-loading uh, rifle is uh, already a breech-loading rifle. So yeah. you could essentially continue bloody big battles into the first parts in the first couple of years of the uh, of World War One in that and, area. And, and people do, apparently. Uh, there's always players popping up on the web doing surprising things i know there are guys who fight first world war eastern front with bbb and there are people doing latin american wars of liberation in the 1820s with bbb and uh, it's none of my doing people <laughs> picking it picking up picking up and run with running with it which is great so let's uh let's let's pivot let's talk a uh, 19th century we're going to get to india in just a second but i want to pivot to uh, late 19th century uh the the late 19th century uh piece can you kind of run through uh the historical base uh, of of that of of that section of your of your uh, battles yeah well this has been an enthusiasm of mine since i was 15 and my dad bought me a copy of hosier's russo-turkish war published in i don't know 1880 and I thought, wow, never heard of this. Hardly any Brits involved, one or two generals. And I got really into that. And then from that, I got into the other wars of the period, which sometimes get called the hyphenated wars. You've got this series of hyphenated wars, Austro-Prussian, mm-hmm. uh, Franco-Prussian, Russo-Turkish. And it's all of the big empires of the European continent trying to elbow each out of the way and each other out of the way and be top dog. These, this is when it's the last period, really, when a general can see the whole of the battlefield and when a when a battle is going to be decided in a day on one field or maybe two or three days. But you know, in principle, that they're really big battles. They're pivotal. They're epic. And I wanted to play these on a, 
a tabletop in an evening. So that's that was the focus of Bloody Big Battles. Uh, my buddy Dave said, I want to try Franco-Prussian War. And I said, well, all right, but let's do it properly. It's all about big battles. It's not If you do skirmish, it's just generic skirmish in different hats. There's no right. point in that. But it's all about the big what? battles. And, oh, and what? <laughs> You think I'm going to let that slide? Ah, I thought I'd <laughs> slip that past you. <laughs> so, but, uh, uh, so let's like talk. I, I want to talk Russell Ottoman or Russell Turkish for a second. Yeah. That, that uh, it's a 1870, 1872, 1871. 77, 78. 77, 78. Sorry. Well, they have one every quarter of a century. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Terrain-wise, if you're playing in the Caucasus, Hmm. That you're talking a mountain in, in the mountain. When I think bloody big battles, when I think when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking big fields, you know, Leipzig and and uh, hmm. Borodino, yeah. and you know. So I'm thinking, you know, in that type of scale, when you when you're talking, when you're going to the Caucasus in that particular, how how what's your effect? of the terrain in your game system you do need quite a lot of terrain if you're having a, a whole battlefield and real terrain is inconveniently lumpy so you need quite a few hills i abstract it down simplify it as much as i can to make it feasible but you're right the caucasus in bloody big european battles the first scenario supplement that we did there is one of those russo-turkish battles al Ajadag. Mm -hmm. My pronunciation is probably hideous, but uh, Russians advancing across a plain and then attacking Turks in the mountains. In in the game, the terrain has the kinds of expect kind of effects you'd expect. Interrupts visibility or gives some visibility over obstacles if you're high enough. Big thing is difficult terrain makes it difficult to maneuver. Right, penalises your your die rolls for movement. You're more likely not to move or not to move so far. You might even get lost, go backwards. So simple mechanisms, but I think, uh, accurately reflecting the effects of the terrain. Was there anything when you were putting together any of your versions or any, any of your scenario, is there anything that stood out that said, you know, this is going to be really, this is really difficult to try to translate into, into your scenarios or into your rule set? No, I don't remember any particular difficulties, maybe because the approach was elastic and in some ways simplistic. It was fundamental and, and you could apply it to anything. But then what makes it subtle is all the, the different attributes, the ratings you can give to troop types and to armies for their doctrine. So it's, it's a set of simple buttons and levers, but which together can produce quite nuanced effects. And armies capture the character, the very different character of different armies. And you really see it come out at the army scale. Right. Now, one side might be very ponderous and passive and find it hard to coordinate their operations. And meanwhile, the Prussians, who've got more generals than they know what to do with and, and efficient staff, if they want to move, they move pretty much. Uh, right. Nothing's perfect. You can, you'll always get some clouds of itchy and friction, some spanners in the works when you roll snake eyes. What was your impetus for India? You know, we're well, this this is a case of people picking it up and running with it. It it wasn't me. It was one of our regular guys, a core member of the the group in Oxford, mm -hmm. Mark Smith, Doctor Mark Smith. He's a historian by trade, and he just started wondering, could we do Indian battles? And and yes, of course we could. Uh, and the India supplement it starts with Wellington's wars. Uh, the second Maratha war circa mm -hmm. 1803 that's where wellington makes his name as a sepoy general and then you get the sikh wars and the mutiny Gwalior campaign and those are really good games because of the asymmetry of the armies I mean, i'm sure you you find this in your games because you 
do you do that kind of thing central asia so mm -hmm. when you've got two sides who are so different uh then the tactical challenge for each side is is different and you're trying to exploit your strengths and the enemy's weaknesses and that makes for interesting games whether it's barbarossa in russia in 1941 or, right. or um east india company against massive hordes of irregular cavalry in india so that, yeah they're, they're really good games the one thing i I find interesting about India in general is the the sieges of towns and, mm -hmm. and cities and yeah. castles and stuff like that. So, so where do you where does uh, where does BBB fall in in that? How do you address that in your rule set? Well, Mark does have I think two scenarios for the fighting in Lucknow. Lucknow, Lucknow. Uh, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm going to go Lucknow just because Lucknow. Yeah, you know. Uh, but uh, but I I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so he, he's got a couple of scenarios where the British are trying to fight their way through city blocks, and there's hordes of um, irregulars can be popping up randomly on their flanks. I think he found a good way to do it. As for more formal siege operations, the closest I can think of BBB coming to that is actually back to the Russo-Turkish War, where biggest event in that was six months of epic siege of Plevna. So there are two battles of Plevna in the scenario book where the Russians are trying to storm the redoubts. You want a game to be a game of maneuver, so you need the, to cover enough of the siege that mm -hmm. um, both sides have got some options. Where do you put, where do you mass your batteries? Where do you put your reserves? What diversionary attacks are going in? This, I think, is a virtue of the scale at which BBB does it, whereas a more narrowly focused game might have to just be, all right, here's our one section of wall. Here's our siege guns. We, we roll the dice till we bash a hole in it. And right. now we can move the troops through the breach. And there's the guys on the other side and we have a fight. Okay, that, that can be colorful and fun. Draw the frame larger, cover enough of um, enough extent of the siege, and you can have all the diversionary operations, the secondary activity, other stuff going on, and that makes for more options for both sides, and therefore a more interesting and varied game. I, I asked this because I, in my research for my Central Asia project, there are there aren't a lot of big battles. Mm. There's a there's there's a few uh, with uh, Russians in, incursion into Central Asia. Uh, the siege of Samarkand. For, in, for instance, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, and I, I was looking at uh, when I was trying to decide whether to continue with large battles like I had been doing uh, in 172nd or go into a skirmish game. When I'm looking at Samarkand, for instance, I mean, it's 11 miles of wall and the Russians are just they're they're out there just trying to get in there. And this is later in the uh, later in the in the 19th century. Yeah, I just in my mind, the only way to do that would be. 15 or under and probably yeah. six even better now, how, <laughs> how big was it how big is the russian force 10 or twenty thousand men oh yeah easy easy you know so the but um but just the scale of the terrain itself you know i i find it difficult just in in what i'm doing now in central asia these buildings are huge <laughs> you know and i think to myself you know i i want a centerpiece of a like I'm, pre I'm prepping for um, a convention in Orlando that's going to be in April, and I'm prepping for mm -hmm. it. And I have like five games in my head, and I'm starting to prep each one of them. And a couple of them, I want uh, a really good centerpiece to the game. Yeah, you know. And I have a, I have a couple of ideas, but at 28 mil, I'm not going to be able to do anything in Kiev <laughs> or do anything in some of these big cities because although I'm comfortable with my architectural skill enough to be able to build, you know, these mosques and these, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, Tamerlane's 
you know, tomb, mm-hmm. I'm going to need a U-Haul to get <laughs> it to Orlando because the, just the height alone in sure. 28 millimeter is, is massive. Even in, even in 15 mil, I mean, you're talking about a piece that's going to be almost a foot tall, you know, yeah, it's magnificent, but is it practical? <laughs> right. Cause I, I, you know, I, I'm a little selfish because I do want to. I want everybody to go. Ooh, ah, mm-hmm. oh, oh, you know, right? Yeah, just because yeah. you know, I I don't uh, I don't do this that often, so I figure, all right, mm-hmm. well, let's go go in there. You're gonna go go big, but I don't know about that big. <laughs> yeah, I guess you have to work out how your 11 miles of wall fits on, and then what's the footprint of your centerpiece building? And well, okay. Yeah. If, if it can only occupy eight inches square, then how tall has it got to be, and what scale does that make it? Right. Right. Hey, you're doing the BBB elastic scale thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I figured I figured out what I'm going to do. I just, hmm. but uh, some of these, some of these uh, other areas where it'd be more historical are not going to be taking place because it's just, you know, I don't even have a, I, I got a, a 10 by 10 room that I work in. I can't hmm. imagine, you know, I need a, you know, 20 by 20 garage and the, the, all the tools. I mean, me and my little Dremel, <laughs> you know, a bandsaw and yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, this is it, isn't it? I've been talking to a guy over the last week who, oh, yeah, my buddy's got um, a purpose-built building in the bottom of his garden and he's got a 25-foot-by-six table and we get to game there. Well, that's great. If you've got that, you you use it. And uh, not everyone has that luxury. And Mm -hmm. if they have, maybe you still can't all get to it every week. And I I like to have a game a week. And that basically means going to the club. And that means something you can put up play and put away in four hours so i think you know i i think the purpose of us the discussion on on this particular point is just i'm thinking about it would it would make sense to me again correct me if i'm wrong it would make sense to me that uh the rule set is going to be more fluid and more actionable when everybody has a chance to maneuver yeah for gameplay yes yeah and it really is about maneuver I, I played too many games in the past where nothing much changed from turn to turn. And you you guys move two centimeters and you exchange volleys and another 12 people fall over. Mm-hmm. And then you do the same again next turn and the same again next turn and nothing happens. A typical BBB game, eight or 10 or 12 turns long. And every turn, something happens. Every turn, it has to change significantly. So there are big move distances. Um, combat can be quite decisive uh and because of the large ground scale you usually have some flanks and some space and some choices and it's not just wall-to-wall troops with no option but to grind forward so it has to be about maneuver and you need the space and you need the move distances to make that possible so if somebody wanted to pick up bloody big battles Hmm. where are we doing this well it's not a big commercial operation skirmish campaigns um so I know of four main retailers. I, I, well, I know the books find their way to other places as well. Mm-hmm. But in the US, uh, Brigade Games or On Military Matters. Over here in the UK, Caliber Books and North Star have both been really good supporters of the rules. Excellent. So there, there's the tips. <laughs> well, I mean, because you know, like like you and I are recording this before before Christmas, and hmm. you know if. Uh, you know, Santa's going to come down, you know, the chimney and is going to give little Jimmy a, <laughs> you know, a book of bloody big battles, you know, it might make his day, right? Sure. Yeah. And and it, it can be hard to find. There was a chat popped up on the Facebook page you mentioned just this week saying, where can I find these? So, all right, let's help people find them. 
So on military matters uh, in the U.S., Brigade Games in the U.S., yep. uh, North Star and Cavalier Books in U.K. Yeah, yep. excellent. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, oh, honor is satisfied. God clearly preserves you for greatness. Hi, I'm famous podcaster and influencer, Sir Scott. And when I was young, my analyst said that I had an overactive imagination. I mean, he was a financial analyst, but he was still right, okay? Now, as a kid, I would always see my G.I. Joes capture tigers, excavate treasures, or elude dangerous snakes. And I would lose myself in Adventures of Tarzan and Flash Gordon and Conan. Old-time radio always had that magic that could transport you to different times and transport you to different worlds. And now I offer you a podcast filled exclusively with adventures in audio. Search and subscribe to Vintage Radio Adventures, found on most podcast apps. That's Vintage Radio Adventures. This is Shot and Shield. Hurry ho, tip tip them, Bernard's your uncle.
in the home stretch of this episode of the Shot and Shield Supercast. You can hit me up on Twitter at Shot and Shield or the email, the Shot and Shield Podcast at gmail.com or on the Facebook uh, group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group. In this episode's archaeological audio discovery, I present to you the story of George Armstrong Custer, as played by one of my heroes, Errol Flynn. I, I'm dead serious. Errol Flynn, Ernest Hemingway, Orson Welles. One, two, three. Those are the ones. Anyway, this rendition of They Died With Their Boots On is from The Cavalcade of America, 1941. With Errol Flynn, the story of George Armstrong Custer and what led up to the Battle of Little Bighorn, they died with their boots on. The Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, presents Errol Flynn in a radio adaptation of Warner Brothers' latest motion picture, They Died With Their Boots On. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Clayton Collier. Tonight, by special arrangement with Warner Brothers Studios, we bring you Errol Flynn in scenes from his new motion picture, They Died With Their Boots On, a picture co-starring Olivia de Havilland, which will be released soon throughout the country. This imaginative screen treatment of a great American soldier, General George Armstrong Custer, with its vivid theme of undying heroism, is presented by the Cavalcade of America tonight as DuPont stars Errol Flynn in his latest colorful screen role, General George Custer, in They Died With Their Boots On. Monroe, Michigan, a middling town in the middle of the country. It is the year 1866. At breakfast in a middling household sits a demobilized soldier of middling rank. He is talking with his wife. You look well, darling. Trip did you good. Thank you, General Custer. Captain Custer now, Libby. You're forgetting. Aren't you going to ask me about Chicago, Captain? No. I'm waiting for you to tell me. Well, I dropped in on Uncle Phil Sheridan for just a moment. Oh, how's the old general? Thinking of you. As always, George. And he sent you a present. Well, that was nice of the old gentleman. Here it is, General. Thank you, my dear. Why, look at this. It's a watch and chain to Major General George Armstrong Custer from his old Michigan brigade. They haven't forgotten me after all, Libby. <laughs> Silly, how could they? After all, it was you who made heroes of them at Gettysburg. Oh, but they were great boys. Great days, too, Libby. You do miss your soldiering, don't you, George? No, no. I'm happy enough. There are thousands of regiments, darling, but there's only one you. Spoken very gallantly, sir. You want to look at your mail now, darling? Yes, guess so. Get it over with. The General's morning mail. Oh, what's that one there? That looks terribly official. Yes. The emptier they are, the more official they look. <laughs> Dear Captain Custer, at the suggestion of the Secretary of War, I am... Libby. What? Libby, I'm on the active list again. Lieutenant Colonel to command a regiment of cavalry in the West. Oh. It says they passed up 50 senior officers, including lieutenant generals, to give me the job. Oh, darling, I'm so glad for you. It's a pretty wild country, though. The railroad doesn't go that far. 
Go part way by wagon and... Oh, Libby, do you mind very much? Mind? This is the first time I've seen you really happy for years. Oh, darling, action. Action at last. I... Libby, that trip to Chicago, you didn't arrange this whole thing through your Uncle Phil Sheridan, did you? George, how can you say such a thing? Well, I know, but... Well, maybe somebody in Washington remembered Gettysburg. You couldn't forget Gettysburg in three years, could you? Nobody could. Of course not, darling. Nobody could. Oh, oh. Well, here you are, folks. This here's Fort Abe Lincoln. Fort Lincoln? But where's the sentry? Where's the guard? Uh, that's them over there on the porch of Sharp Saloon. Guess they don't know who you are. Well, if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have taken them for cabrymen. Look, uh, go and bring that lieutenant over here, will you? Uh, yes, sir. Looks like I'll have to leave you for a few minutes, Libby. It's all right, dear. I can manage. Uh, lieutenant Roberts, sir. Sorry you find us in such bad order, sir. Lieutenant, would you mind telling me why there's no guard out to meet me? Why are the men in that saloon instead of patrolling the wagon trail? The sewer on the warpath, sir. Our orders ought to pull up here. Hmm. Well, the fort's not here to protect the regiment, Roberts. The regiment's here to protect the wagon trains going west. I know, sir, but you see how it is since Mr. Sharp opened his post here. Sharp? Who is this Sharp? I thought he just ran the saloon. Oh, he sells liquor to the regiment and rifles to the Indians. I see. Well, we'll put a stop to that right now, Lieutenant. Come along with me, will you? I want you to introduce me to this Mr. Sharp. Yes, sir. He's over there now. You see, sir, we're most of us newly mustered in. We haven't had any commanding officers yet. So I see. Here's the place, sir. We're going, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. After you, sir. Thank you. Attention! Men, this is your new commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Oh, I tell you, it couldn't be Custer. Oh, I tell you, it is. Who's in charge here? This is my place, Custer. Sharp's my name. Oh, well, I'll see you later, Sharp. Lieutenant? Yes, sir. Put those two troopers there under arrest. Charge them with not being able to hold their liquor. They're supposed to be cavalrymen. Yes, sir. Now then, Mr. Sharp, I want this bar closed right now. You can't close this bar, Custer. This place was licensed by the Secretary of War. And personally. Lieutenant? Yes, sir. Turn out a section with sidearms. Close this place up. This bar's illegal business. Boys, you know your rights. No one can tell you how to spend your pay, can they? No! Wait a minute, men. I have to admit to you that Mr. Sharp is quite right. There's no legal reason why this bar should be closed. None whatsoever. But if I find it open, starting one minute from now, Mr. Sharp is going to get the surprise of his life because I'm going to throw him through that big plate glass mirror behind his bar. All right, Custer, you win this time. All right, as you were, men. Now, look. I want you to understand I'm not doing this because I'm a blue nose. Maybe it's tough on me to go without a drink, too. <laughs> Maybe it's tougher. But this regiment has a job to do. We're responsible for 100,000 square miles of territory. And until we can honestly say that we're in shape to tackle that job, you won't catch me taking a drink either. I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. All right, men. And that's the way it's going to be in this regiment.
Attention! At ease, gentlemen. Sit down, will you? What I have to say won't take so very long, so we might as well be comfortable. Gentlemen, as officers, I'm proud of your work on maneuvers today. I don't think I've ever seen a finer-looking regiment. But I want to tell you this. A regiment is something more than just 600 fighting men. In a few days' time, we march to the west against Crazy Horse and his Sioux Raiders. A thousand of the best light cavalrymen on the face of the earth. Some of us will die. But the regiment will live on. Because a regiment has an immortal soul of its own. Now, if we can believe that, gentlemen, we'll have the kind of pride from which, which men will endure anything and, if necessary, die with their boots on. leader of men against them, called by his people Crazy Horse, and there was proud fighting across the clean sweep of the plains, and a peace at last, a proud and honorable peace. Long hair, my people, Sue, come to make peace with you. I have heard my brother's words, and I give my brother my word, and the guarantee of the White Father, the shrine of your people's gods... The Black Hills will never again be violated by white men so long as the peace be kept. My fighters will protect your land. And may your people dwell there forever in peace. Crazy Horse, you have my word. Ah, Custer, we meet again. Welcome back to Fort Lincoln. Well, what brings you to Dakota, Mr. Tape? Business, Custer. Business. Officially, I'm the new government commissioner in these parts. Oh, I heard there was a new commissioner, but I... But you never dreamed to be me, did you, Custer? Well, let's let bygones be bygones. I'm not one to hold a grudge. Right. We'll shake on that. Good. Uh, what kind of a treaty is this that you put through with the Sioux? I hold some stock in a railroad that was mighty anxious to get a right-of-way through the Black Hills. Do you? Yeah. Well, I hold some stock in a regiment that's mighty anxious to keep its word, Mr. Tape. Ah. Uh, well, uh, I'm sure we can work it out, Custer. Fine. By the way, sir, I've arranged a little review of my regiment. Starts in just a moment. Perhaps you'd like to take a salute, would you? I'm honored, Custer. Fine. Let's step outside. I'm... After you, sir. Thank you. You've met all my officers, I believe. Yes. What do you mean to say you're staging a review without officers? Oh, yes. That's because I want you to see what soldiers can do by themselves, Mr. Tape, when they've got something to believe in. Oh. Well, this should be interesting. Signal them to start, will you, uh, Lieutenant Roberts? Yes, sir. Here they come now, sir. Good. There's the forward rank now, Mr. Tape. I want you to watch the discipline of these horsemen when they parade past us. Uh, but they... Good heavens, Custer, the forward man of the column and... Look at him. Why, why, he must be sick. Roberts, what's wrong there? Rest if I know, sir. Signal him to fall out. 
They're coming right on, sir, on the gallop. They don't see me. Precious 7th Cavalry Regiment is drunk, Custer. What's the meaning of this? I don't know, Tape, but I'm going to find out. <laughs> All right, Sharp. Come out from behind that bar, Sharp. I said, come out from behind that bar. Now, Custer. I reopened this bar on the authority of Commissioner Tape. Drinks were free to the men in honor of his visit. Free, were they? Well, here's one bottle they won't get. And here's another. And another. And another. Hutchie, you're destroying private property. These glasses, they're private property too, aren't they? Custer, stop it. I'm just beginning. Now listen, Custer. That's nice brandy there. Good stuff, isn't it? And that nice big mirror back of the bar. Custer. Here's Custer. some for you, Tape. Custer, you're mad. This bar was open on my authority. Your men are drunk and sots. That's your responsibility, not Mr. Sharp. Sots! You call my men sots? Why, you cheap, bootlegging politician? Uh, let you me go. Help. You a little parasite. Custer! Custer, uh, let him go. This is the commissioner. Commissioner uh, or not, I'm going to give him this. Uh, All right, gentlemen. I finished, I think. You'll be court-martialed for this, Custer. You'll be court-martialed in Washington. You are listening to They Died With Their Boots On, starring Errol Flynn as General George Armstrong Custer in a radio presentation of his new Warner Brothers motion picture on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont maker of better things for better living through chemistry. As our show continues, General Custer, played by Errol Flynn, stripped of his rank for striking a government representative, sits beside his wife on a train bound for Washington, where he faces a court-martial. All in all, fifteen minutes stop. Well, Libby, nearly there. Yes, nearly there. Oh, Mr. Custer, there are some reporters outside Hmm? I don't uh, want to see them. Uh, they seem very anxious to see you, sir. No, thank you. Uh, just as you say, Mr. Custer. Is there anything you'd like me to get you, dear? Some cigars? No, thank you, darling. Oh, you might get me a newspaper, would you? Oh, no, wait. There's a boy now. Hey there, boy. Yes, sir. At your service. Have you got a Chicago or Washington paper there? I got the Chicago Record Herald just in half an hour ago. All about the big gold strike in the Black Hills. The what? Gold? In the Black Hills? Bigger than California, they say. Thank you, sir. Libby. Listen to this. The stampede started when an Indian squaw tendered a nugget of gold for supplies in the Western Railroad Land and Trading Company in Fort Lincoln. Thousands of people from Chicago and vicinity alone Thousands are... of people? Why, that's what Mrs. Tape said. What? She... Tape's wife? When did she say that? The day you came back to the fort after the treaty had been signed. She advised me to buy stock in Sharp's company because thousands of people would be coming to the Black Hills. I thought she was joking because under the treaty, of course... Maybe. do you realize what this means? Why... They knew all about this gold rush before it happened. It means it's a fraud, the whole thing. Conductor. Oh, yes, Mr. Custer. Bring those reporters in. Yeah, but, Mr. Custer, you just Never mind it. what I said. Bring them in. There's not much time. Right away, sir. George, you seem oh, so excited. What is it? You'll hear in a moment, darling. Well, Mr. Custer, I'm glad you changed your mind. Uh, Mr. Custer, we'd like to get the story about your trouble out west. Uh, what about this fellow Tape? Weren't you rivals at West Point? Now, wait a minute, gentlemen. I'll tell you the whole story. 
Sit down, be quiet, and listen. Thank uh, you, sir. All set, sir. Let her go. Gentlemen, I accuse Mr. Tate, the government representative in the Dakota Territory, of a deliberate and traitorous conspiracy to violate the Treaty of the United States with the Sioux Indians. Mr. Custer, do you mean to say that... Please don't interrupt me, sir. I'll tell you all you want to know and more. You may quote me here throughout. I accuse not only Mr. Tape, but the administration in Washington as well of this treason against the United States. Isn't that going a little far, Mr. Custer? Well, I'll go further. These men are thieves and murderers as well. You want to be quoted on that? Write down every word of it. I can prove that Mr. Tape knew of this fake gold rush before it even happened. That he and Mr. Sharp invented it. That they cold-bloodedly plotted to sacrifice the lives of innocent citizens. Well, how's that, Mr. Custer? Because when those settlers go into the Black Hills looking for gold, they'll violate my treaty with the Indians. They'll be slaughtered. To the last man. Will you stake your reputation on your statement that there's no gold in the Black Hills? Yes, I will. Furthermore, I intend to take this to President Grant himself. I intend to fight these criminal politicians and parasites to the last ditch. And gentlemen, if I had known when I was first cashiered what I know now, I'd have hanged every single one of them from those gateposts of Fort Lincoln. I'm sorry, Mr. Custer, but the president will not see you. But I tell you, thousands of people are going to lose their lives. I'm sorry, Mr. Custer. Wait, where are you going? Get out of my way. But you can't. You can't go in there. No. General Grant? What in thunder do you mean, storming into my office like this? May I remind you, Mr. Custer, that I am the president of the United States? I'm not interested in the president of the United States. I'm interested in a certain soldier named Ulysses S. Grant. What is it? I want my regiment back, Grant. You'll get nothing from me but a court-martial. To the devil with a court-martial. I want my regiment back. Maybe you'll tell me why I should give it to you. Yes, I'll tell you. Because you know how a man feels when he's broken and left behind a regiment that's marching out to fight. You know, Grant, because you had a taste of it yourself once. Remember? Mm. How about it, Grant? Well, what are you waiting for? Go back and get your blasted regiment and do what you want to with it. Men... Beg to report, sir. The regiment's ready for action, sir. Right. Be along in a moment. Yes, sir. I, uh... General Custer, sir. Hmm? What is it, Roberts? Uh, I've been meaning to ask you ever since you got back to Fort Lincoln. Uh, the... What do you honestly think our chances are of coming back from the little bighorn? Well, I... Why do you ask that? Well, sir, you seem my wife. We haven't been married very long, and I thought... Well, if there's not much hope of our getting back. Oh. Well, Roberts, we're... We're 600 men against the combined strength of every Indian fighting man in this territory. They're fighting to defend their last sanctuary, the Black Hills. And I don't blame them. But it's them or us. And I'm afraid it's going to be us. In other words... In other words, we haven't a ghost of a chance of coming back alive from the little beacon. 
That's what I thought, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, uh, Roberts. Yes, sir? I don't think I'd tell your wife if I were you. It'll be easier for her that way, however it turns out. Perhaps you're right. Thank you, sir. Right. You can mount the columns now, if you like. I won't be long. Yes, sir. We'll be waiting, sir. Right. George? Oh, come in, my dear. I'm just trying to soften up these old jackboots. Stiffened up a bit since the last time I was in them. They might have done a better job polishing them up. Well, I doubt if Crazy Horse will notice. (laughs) George, I... Here's your cartridge belt. Thank you, my dear. Now then, anything I've forgotten? Field glasses? Yes. Compass? Got it. Your watch? Watch? Oh, here it is. You know, Libby, they ought to make you quartermaster general. Every time I go into the field, I'm the best equipped man in the regiment. <laughs> oh, oh, look what I've done. What is it? Well, your, your little miniature. It's oh. broken. I won't be able to take this with me. It'll be the first time you've ever gone on a campaign without this miniature. Yes. Well, there isn't any time to fix it, and I can't take any chances on its being lost. I'm afraid it doesn't look much like me anymore. Why, it does. You haven't changed, though. (laughs) I'm sure you're the only soldier in history who ever became a general without letting his belt out. (laughs) Oh, you wait until we've finished up here. Washington staff job for two years, and I'll be as fat as any old general. And twice as pompous. (laughs) We'll grow old and fat together. It'll be wonderful. Mm Mm-hmm. Together. And people will say... Don't tell me that life out in Dakota was such a hardship. The Custers grew fat and happy on it. You have been happy here, haven't you, Libby? Don't I look happy? Yes. Well, let me see now. My orders. I put them in that drawer. I'll get them. Hey, what's this? What? Oh, that... That's my diary. My life with General Custer. I didn't know you kept Oh, it, it, it wouldn't interest you, dear. Just silly things that seem important to a woman. May 16th, 1876. Tomorrow my husband leaves. And I cannot but feel that my last happy days are ended. A premonition of disaster such as I have never known is weighing upon me. I try to shut it into my heart. But it is almost unbearable. I pray, God, I be not asked to walk on alone. I probably wrote that or something like it every time you left me. Of course. Of course, I know. I often feel the same way myself. When will you come back? This time? Oh, five weeks. Six at the most. See, that'll be... Say, June the 25th. Mm-hmm. I'll make an entry on that day, too. My husband returned today. Yes. Goodbye, my dear. Goodbye, George. Goodbye, General Custer. Goodbye. 
Some seven weeks later, after what was to go down in history as one of the tragic battles of all time, Custer's last stand, the War Department of the United States made a simple entry in its records. It is the life history of a soldier. Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, born December 5th, 1839, brevetted Major General April 15th, 1865, killed in action June 25th, 1876. Thank you, Errol Flynn. We sincerely hope that your new motion picture, They Died With Their Boots On, enjoys the success it so well merits when it's released and shown throughout the country. Ladies and gentlemen, in a few moments, our star will return to the microphone, but first we have some interesting information for you. The American Indians, who called salt white magic, named it better than they knew. Because salt, the white crystals you use so casually at your dinner table, almost without being aware of them, are crystals of creation itself. Crystals from which the chemist makes things as far apart as the gleaming surface of a motor bearing and the marvelous fluid that cools a modern refrigerator. To the chemist, salt is sodium chloride. Melted by a high amperage electric current, it is literally pulled apart electrically to yield sodium, a silvery metal, and chlorine, a greenish-yellow gas. Both sodium and chlorine are elementary building blocks from which an almost infinite number of more elaborate compounds can be made. Sodium goes into the manufacture of dyes, like indigo. Combined with oxygen, sodium yields sodium peroxide, the bleach that leaves your towels permanently white. Sodium is a component of sodium perborate, an important ingredient of many modern dentifrices. Sodium enters into sodium cyanide, the source material for an effective fumigating gas that destroys vermin. This same sodium cyanide, as a molten bath, gives automobile gears and other parts a surface almost diamond hard. And your gold-plated jewelry, the silver-plated knives and forks, those too, and a wide variety of familiar metal articles are plated with the help of cyanides manufactured by DuPont from salt. The other chemical half of salt is the green gas, chlorine. Chlorine bleaches paper and textiles. The chemists who watch over your municipal water supply use it to purify your drinking water. Other chemicals called chlorinated hydrocarbons are of great service to industry. Virtually every piece of metal that goes into an airplane, for example, must get degreased in the course of inspection and assembly. That is, it must be washed chemically clean of oil films. The plane parts are cleaned perfectly in the wink of an eye by a chlorinated hydrocarbon degreasing bath. Other chlorine compounds like Freon-safe refrigerants are used in household and commercial refrigerating units and in air conditioning systems. Carbon tetrachloride, made again from chlorine charges the fire extinguisher that safeguards life and property. And other chlorinated hydrocarbons remove the caffeine from coffee and extract the oil from soybeans. Sparkling white crystals of ordinary salt to the chemist are veritable seeds. Inorganic seeds, true, but still seeds, from which an infinite variety of compounds for our modern society may be grown. In the state of Michigan alone... The United States has enough salt to supply the entire world for 200 million years to come. And there's more besides. Thanks to modern research, this common salt has become an inexhaustible source from which the DuPont chemist derives many of the better things for better living through chemistry. 
And now we'd like you to meet our star, Errol Flynn. Well, Errol, it's been grand having you with us tonight. <clears throat> Thank you, Clayton. It's been a busy week for me, of course, uh, finishing the picture in Hollywood and then flying on to New York for this radio version. But it's been a real pleasure working with you here on Cavalcade. Well, Errol, I was present last week at a private showing of They Died With Their Boots On, and I can sincerely say that Warner Brothers Studio did an extraordinary job. I wasn't just watching it, I was living it. Especially the exciting battle at the end of the film. You know, that's one of the greatest spectacles I've ever seen on the screen. Well, it was a tough job, Clayton. I'm glad you liked it, but I don't think I'll ever forget shooting that battle scene. You know, I used to get a little nervous working with those Indians. You see, they were real Sioux from the Dakota Reservation, the actual descendants of the Braves who fought the original battle. Uh -huh. And I kept remembering I was dressed like General Custis. I just had my fingers crossed, <laughs> hoping they'd remember I was just kidding. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's good you did. You'd probably be wearing a wig right now. Oh, yes, a bald one, probably. <laughs> But seriously, Clayton, I hope tonight's cavalcade has given your listeners uh, an impression of what to expect when they see the new picture. It's been lots of fun, and before I go, may I say thank you to the cavalcade players, and I'm sure Joan Bennett will enjoy working on cavalcade just as much as I have. I understand she's your star next week. Oh, yes, Errol, she is. We have a great story for Joan Bennett next week. It's Stark Young's colorful and romantic novel of the Old South, So Read the Rose. Oh. Paramount made it into a wonderful movie. Uh, we hope you listen. Right, that's a date. Thanks again, Clayton. So long. Don't forget next week, the Cavalcade of America stars Joan Bennett in a radio version of Stark Young's great romantic story of America's Southland, So Read the Rose. On tonight's program, the orchestra and the original musical score were under the direction of Don Vuries. On the Cavalcade of America, your announcer is Clayton Collier, sending best wishes from DuPont. Network of the National Broadcasting Company. From 1941 and the Cavalcade of America's presentation of They Died With Their Boots On, starring the fine actor Errol Flynn. All right, thus sadly concludes another episode of Shot and Shield. Being that it is the January episode, I would like to thank each one of you for joining me and wish you happiness and wonder and fulfillment as we celebrate the new year together. Many thanks to Chris Pringle for joining me once again to discuss the rule set Bloody Big Battles, which you can find at Cavalier Books. I will say this about Chris and I. Uh, we got together just before I started editing this episode, and we recorded like another 45 minutes of conversation about the subject. And guess what? I forgot to hit record. I'm a moron. <laughs> However, I will be having Chris back on soon to discuss uh, his upcoming uh, book, Another Phase of the Hungarian Revolution of 1848. If you are listening for the first time, please take a moment and uh, join either the Twitter feed, at Shot and Shield, or the Facebook group, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group, and please post your excellent work, your miniatures, your paintings, your buildings, anything you have going on. Uh, in wargaming, 19th century wargaming, please put it on there. There are uh, several monster experts uh, if you have a question. If you have a question about anything that's related to what we're talking about today, 
there are amazing, amazing guys, amazing experts, both on the Facebook group and on Twitter, who will answer your questions. They're great guys, and they know stuff. They know more, way more about it than I do. So please jump in there, ask some questions, and and let us steal your tremendous ideas. <laughs> anyway, all that's left to be said is that you've been listening in Germantown, Pennsylvania, in Tehran, Iran, and in Normal, Illinois, to the Shot Shield Supercast, a show dedicated to colonial and 19th century wargaming, history, a podcast meant to be listened to while you're painting or working on your amazing projects. I am the Lord Scott of the Duchy of Florida, and I'm out. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity.